Our Father, ever redeemed heart in this room, senses the great truth of what we have just sung. That there is the need on the part of all of us to, to be reduced as the image of Jesus Christ becomes sharper and clearer in our countenance. We, we sing with a certain enjoyment, but Lord, we sing with a, a, a rising longing in our hearts. To that it, so that it might be said of truth that there is more of Thee and less of me. Our Father, we know the damage that selfishness can bring. That self-centered living, that self-orbiting living can do to homes and marriages and, and neighborhoods and offices and churches. And so, Father... We thank you for the privilege that is ours to come and worship. And in the midst of our worship is this strong cry from your people. More of you, Lord. Like the Spirit of God, author more of you in each heart that is here today. Our Father, we are about to be saturated with reminders of September the 11th, and rightly so. What a, what a day it was, a day that surpassed even December the 7th in terms of loss of life. And Father, um, it was pain inflicted upon us by our enemies, and we pray for our enemies. And pray that you might, as you have done in our lives, open their eyes to see the utter foolishness of their way. To think that some kind of human behavior could be rewarded with heaven is utterly unthinkable. That the only path that any of us can follow to heaven is a path marked off by the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we gain access to the Heavenly Father through Jesus and none else. But Father, we do pray for those who have lost life and will be so terribly reminded of it in these next few days. And I pray that you would grant them stamina. Lord, I do thank you for the men and women who serve this community, one of which even went to the ground zero to help in any way he could. And I pray, O oh God, that you will guard them. It is a world gone mad, a world that shoots and kills with no remorse, a world that torches the property of others for the enjoyment of seeing others suffer. It is a world that has turned on this country. Indeed, we are blamed for all sorts of evil, and perhaps, Lord, we deserve it. But what we want to be is a part of the solution. Thank you for these men and women who serve us, protect them, but also use them to advance the the gospel in their spheres of influence. Father, use this congregation to reach out to the people who are around them to remind them that none of us live forever forever that death awaits us all, 
the only thing that can prepare us for that is Jesus Christ. But apart from that, the only one who can prepare us to live with a sense of meaning and purpose and satisfaction is an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, it is to you that we give. We do not give to this church, but we give our monies now in the hopes that Jesus Christ will be further exalted in our midst. Use every dime for that purpose and that purpose only. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Let's begin at verse 18, which is a passage that I think is familiar. It uh, is the passage which I think most would refer to, or would uh, allude to as the, uh, the origin of the institution known as marriage. You follow as I read, beginning at verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now out of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, it's harder to find. It's right after Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Chapter 4. At verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him? And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Back on Father's Day, some of you may remember, I committed myself to launch a series on marriage in the fall. Well, fall has arrived, and with it, it's, uh, it's, it's time to keep my word. But I want to involve you as I begin. I want to involve you in, in some of the struggle that I've encountered in, in getting ready for this series because it hasn't come without some wrestlings in my own soul. The problem I saw that I, that, that prompted in me in the first place to even launch this series, the problem that I saw was forced on me. That is, I was invited in, uh, personally, got real closely and intimately involved with several 
instances, several marriages that were falling apart. Um, and of course, being involved, you get to see all the pain that is in, included. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how much pain one person can inflict on another person. And even more remarkable is that those same two people at one time in the past had pledged to love one another. It's amazing. So what to do about it? Uh, I, as many of you know, at least I hope you know, uh, I have addressed the subject on marriage before. I am a champion, or I have championed the... uh, the glorious institution of marriage. I have led in this church an effort to have our annual Romancing the Home uh, week in February. I'm a big cheerleader for Valentine's Day, and I preached on, on male and female roles in marriage, and I did a series on masculinity and femininity, and I did a long series where I almost burst a blood vessel on uh, the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. And and um, I, I've done numerous things on numerous occasions on this subject. But my point is that I felt somewhat comfortable as I examined my teaching regimen that I had indeed, or at least, uh, presented regularly the information. How well it was presented is another issue. But I had at least regularly presented uh, issues concerning marriage. But therein lie my problem. Um, If information wasn't the problem, that is, we've had a lot of that around here, uh, to what could I now turn which would become the driving force for a new series on the same subject of marriage? More information? Uh, Will any more knowledge help? Certainly it it couldn't hurt, but... um, Will knowledge alone fix broken marriages? Apparently not. Because we have the knowledge here, ladies and gentlemen. I feel comfortable in saying that before you and God. So my frustration lie in the question as to what would it be that would really make a difference or would really motivate us. In this question uh, concerning marriage. And in the providence of God, through a conversation with a, with a very dear brother, he convinced me that fixing marriages shouldn't even be the goal of my series. And uh, he, too, doubted that more information would help anyway. He suggested that the more appropriate goal was to, by God's grace... Seek to create a thirst for a good marriage. An appetite for this glorious institution. And uh, may I go back and say that again. To seek by God's grace to create an appetite for a good marriage. So that's what I'm going to do. At least in this first installment, at least today, ladies and gentlemen... I'm aiming to do just that, by His grace, to remind you that marriage is grand. This is a glorious institution, ladies and gentlemen. I, I realize, as well as you do, that our culture has, um, 
has soured on it, and perhaps some of you have soured on it. But um, just because you're sour on it doesn't mean that's the institution's fault. There's nothing better than a good marriage. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. There's nothing worse than a bad one. And I wonder where you would put yourself on that spectrum. That is, between a good marriage and a bad marriage. But my point is simply that marriage, as God intended it, is a glorious arrangement, which, which I, I really believe you already believe. I, I believe you already believe that a marriage is a glorious arrangement. You already believe that. The reason I believe that you already believe that is because the, the, the data certainly bears it out. Uh, the data being in the face of mounting statistics concerning divorce, people continue to hold on to the hope that they can somehow beat the curve. Rising divorce rates have not produced declining marriage rates, even among people who have been married once before. The desire to be married is still as high when back when social um, uh, psychologists were telling them in the 60s and 70s that it was it was done for. Well, it, it isn't. It hasn't been, and it continues to hold out the same enchantment. But the reasons that it's glorious, ladies and gentlemen, I want to suggest to you are easily discoverable. The, the reasons that it is such a longing for all of us, they're easily found. Biblically, the, the reasons that marriage is such a glorious institution. I read you two passages, and, and I want to go over those quickly and then close and hopefully remind you that marriage is grand. Go back to my first text that I read you out of Genesis chapter 2, uh, verses 18 and following. As I said, is really the words of institution, the words of creation of marriage. But I want to point out a couple of three things. First of all, I want you to notice who it is that's in the driver's seat. Who it is that's making all these observations and seeing all to it that all this comes to pass. That would be God. And it's important that you notice that this takes place prior to the fall. The fall takes place when sin enters. It takes place in the next chapter, in chapter 3. This is prior to the fall, ladies and gentlemen. The point is, the problem that God specifies is not the result of sin. What is the problem that he specifies? It's the problem of aloneness. But aloneness is not the result, ladies and gentlemen, of sin. Sin hasn't even entered. Um, this problem existed long before relationships had been ravaged by sin. Gang, the problem that God saw um, wasn't produced by sin. It was a design deficit. Gang, um, hating aloneness is not a sign of your fallenness, your sin. Hating aloneness is a sign of your creaturehood. Um, people are told, don't get married because you're lonely. Well, Adam did. Gang, um, the good news is, you and I were designed to live life in tandem, not on a unicycle. That is, God saw the design flaw and corrected it himself. I want to read you something that I thought was downright poignant. It comes from a man who died at the age of 38. His name is Thomas Wolfe. And he's addressing how painful 
is loneliness. He, he says it very eloquently, so you got to hang in there. Listen to this. The whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that the sense of loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon particular to myself and a few other solitary people, that a sense of loneliness is the central and inevitable fact of human existence. All this hideous doubt, despair, and dark confusion of the soul a lonely person must know. For he is united to no image save that which he creates himself. He is bolstered by no other knowledge save that which he can gather for himself with the vision of his own eyes and brain. He is sustained and cheered and aided by no party. He is given comfort by no creed. He has no faith in him except his own, and often that faith deserts him, leaving him shaken and filled with impotence. Then it seems to him that his life has come to nothing, that he is ruined, lost, and broken past redemption. And that morning, that bright and shining morning with its promise of new beginnings will never come upon earth, at least for him. Gang, that sense of loneliness is the thing that God saw as such a problem and then set out to remedy it in the institution we call marriage. I am saying to you, guys, that I realize that some of you are lonely even in your marriages. Um, marriage is no guaranteed solution. But that's not the fault of the institution. I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the only remedy available for this design flaw is marriage. There is no other remedy. When God saw it, he fixed it with this institution known as marriage. Now, look with me at the Ecclesiastes passage, because it has a different little twist to it that I want to point out. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to notice... That it is not a reference to marriage. It is a reference to relationships. The emphasis here is on relationships, not marriage. Um, the the, the non-married would have to focus in terms of their understanding of this text on friendships, which is a good thing. There are some, I think it's rare, but there are some who have, are granted the, the gift of singleness. But this is about relationships. But there is a principle in it that is so vitally important, I think, for marriage. And the principle is simply stated in verse 9. Two are better than one. And then it goes on to explain why. That's what I read in those other three verses. Two are better than one. Now, I want to give you five reasons as to why two are better than one. Five quick reasons. Number one, ladies and gentlemen. Um, do you, have you ever heard the old Swedish proverb? If you haven't, well, you ought to, you ought to cross-stitch this and put it up in your kitchen. The, 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 the Swedish proverb that states, shared joy is a double joy and shared sorrow is half a sorrow. Shared joy is double joy, twice the joy when it's shared. But sorrow, when it is shared, is cut in half. My wife's birthday was on the 24th of August, and so for her birthday, I, I took her out of town. We went to um, um, St. Louis, and we spent her birthday riding roller coasters. 
at Six Flags. And if you want to see what two old people are look like when they're riding roller coasters, I have a picture for you that will absolutely horrify you. Um, we, Susie and I both used to think we were fairly cute people until this. This proved us completely, utterly wrong. But um, um, the first ride we got, we got there pretty early in the morning at Six Flags, and we went. The first ride we rode was this Batman thing. Um, and, you know, Gotham City and all, and it's the thing where your legs dangle around, they put you in this big shoulder thing, and you, you know, you, well, um, as we got locked into our, of course, my wife had to undo it because she did it wrong, but anyway, we finally got all locked in, but as we were, um, as we were getting shut down in those seats that twist all around, we noticed there was a young man that was being dismissed out the exit, and Susie and I concluded that the reason that he couldn't ride the ride is because he was too large. Couldn't fit in one of those little seats. And that was sad to us. But and in the course of the unfolding of the day, we ran into him a couple of three times. He was dressed in all, and it was a hot day. He was dressed in all black with a black full-length trench coat on. And we, we ran into him a couple of times while the two of us were kind of enjoying our misery together and being thrown about by roller coasters, we noticed this, this kid was walking through that park all by himself. And that was the greatest sadness. Here we were, you know, old people enjoying each other in the midst of doing something that we probably should have reserved for somebody much younger. But here's this kid, probably 20, walking through Six Flags on a hot summer afternoon in a long trench coat by himself. Our joy was doubled because it was shared. His sorrow was not halved because he was alone. You know, one of the problems that I have in my marriage, you want to hear about it? One of the problems that I have in my marriage is my wife hates to travel and I love it. So she doesn't ever want to leave 9365 Wheatland, and I want to go to Bulgaria. And every now and then she gives in and goes with me. But the point is, I don't want to go to Bulgaria and see it by myself. What good is Bulgaria? Or Tyra Tyra? I, I don't give a hoot, but uh, you know, I don't, what, what good is it if I can't share it with her? Ladies and gentlemen, shared joy is a double joy. Shared sorrow is a half a sorrow. The second reason to believe that this principle, two are better than one, is true. The second reason is because of the necessity of input, ladies and gentlemen. By that I mean necessity of the input that prevents catastrophe. You know, gang, we gain perspective by having somebody at our side. We gain objectivity. We gain courage when, when the situation is bad. Having, having somebody close to me tempers my dogmatism and softens my intolerance, doesn't it? We, we gain another opinion. You know, it's kind of like driving a car on a two-lane dark road and, and trying to see objects in front of you with one headlight on. When the other headlight is on, I get to see it better. You know, Marines are told that if they're ever told to dig in, that when, when they dig that foxhole, make sure it's big enough for two. 
Because there's such a, an, an increase in objectivity, an increase in dealing with problems when I get input from somebody else. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. This is a, little, a piece of prose that I'm telling you. I absolutely am enchanted. It's very brief, so hang in there. But it's one, listen to this. Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keeping what is worth keeping, and with the breath of kindness, blow the rest away. Can I read that again? Because I, I don't want you to forget the rest of it. But listen to this. Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with the person. Ain't that the truth? Having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out, just as they are, chaff and grain together. Certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them. Keep what is worth keeping And with the breath of kindness, blow the rest away. Gang, ain't that true? The inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with the person as I just bore out all of my ugliness. And they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So we look at situations and we make decisions because we've gained input and objectivity that prevents catastrophe. Oh, the inexpressible comfort and joy. Thirdly, the third reason to believe that that principle there in Ecclesiastes 4 is correct. The existence of blind spots. And we all got them. I want to ask you, my friend, what are you today as a person that you would have never become Without him or her. How has he or she helped make you into the person that God desires you to be? Huh? Because I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, living with that person with whom you live has exposed blind spots and has made you into a better human being. The Bible teaches that iron sharpens iron. Boy, it sure does. And it produces a spark or two. But it makes us into people. Who are more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ because we got blind spots. A fourth reason, and it even states it in this text. That is, the reason that two are better than one is because it brings about a calming to a troubled soul. Who picks you up when you fall, ladies and gentlemen? Huh? You know, um, there are times, there are times in our lives. That you will entertain thoughts that five years ago you would have thought unthinkable. Some of you will even entertain the thought of killing yourself. There are times that you'll have to face that, that your situation is a terrible one. And it's the result of your bad choices. That you're to blame. That you're in fault. And your troubled soul simply will not calm down. And you need help. And so God brings alongside a piece of balm in the person of your spouse. Who picks you up when you fall? Huh? One of the books that I read 
in the preparation for this series, was the author, the book wasn't that good, so I don't, I'm not going to recommend it. I'm going to recommend one later in the series, but not this one. But the author's name is Bob. But, um, but uh, Bob told a story about flying from Seattle to Washington, D.C. And on the way, the man on the other side of the aisle from him on that plane in the, in the course of the flight gasps deeply, grabs his chest, and slumps over in the seat. Obviously having a heart attack. Chest pains, at least. Maybe a heart attack. And the woman sitting next to him shrieked and called out, Is there a doctor on board? And thankfully, one was found. And so Bob, the author of this book, and the doctor carried this man to the front of the airplane. The doctor requested of the pilot that they reroute, reroute the flight to the nearest big, hot, big city. And so they, they got permission to do so and headed towards Denver where there would be uh, immediate uh, uh, medical personnel waiting for them. And so um, um, as he lay there on the floor uh, and the, 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 uh, the plane had been rerouted, one of the flight attendants leaned over to the doctor and said, What does he need in the meantime? And he said, his wife. And so they went back to, the, back, to, back to the plane, got his wife, brought her forward. And she laid on the floor next to him, held his hand and stroked his face. And the doctor looked at Bob and said, for now, that's the best medicine there is. Who picks you up when you fall? You know, we, we're running out of time, but I, I can't tell you how often my wife calms my troubled soul. I can't tell you. She could tell you. Fourth or fifth. The fifth reason that this principle is true. Don't we all need to be humbled? Darn tootin' we do, ladies and gentlemen. And if I'm going to be humbled, I would love to be humbled by someone who loves me. How will God use your spouse to change your life into something more winsome and beautiful? Gang, if there, is a, if there was a program that can guarantee that you lived longer, that you were healthier, that you would experience more happiness, save more time, make more money starting today, would you be interested? Of course you would be. You'd be a fool not to be interested. Madison Avenue is trying to sell us things that will do one of those. Americans spend billions of dollars on little gizmos and kitchen aids and exercise machines and, and tablets and et cetera, et cetera, uh, to try and just get one of those things. Well, I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, if the truth were known, the real pathway to achieving all of that is not found in a program. It's not found in a device nor a gizmo. It's found in a relationship known as marriage. Healthier, happier, more prosperous. It's all statistically dem demonstrable. Marriage, ladies and gentlemen. Don't give up on this. Don't give up on marriage, and if you have, let, let's, let's work to get you back where you used to be. It's a glorious arrangement. It's designed to 
to eliminate our greatest fear and provide so many wonderful things for us. I, in this series, ladies and gentlemen, want to celebrate with you the great provision of God in marriage. And I want to assure you that it's worth saving. It's worth fighting for. I know that lots of you have been divorced, and so you have a deeply skewed view of this institution. I understand. I know that others of you are frightened by the, the, uh, the level of commitment that is demanded. I understand that, which means we've got a lot of work to do. But let's not throw it away. It's a marvelous institution. I'll tell you one story and I'm finished. I bet you every person in this room saw this movie because it was the most widely viewed movie in the history of Hollywood. Titanic. Do you remember the story about Jack and Rose, how the wealthy girl falls in love with the poor boy and, and um, uh, you know, the whole story. Well, great little love story. Of course, it celebrated the the destruction of the Titanic. But uh, that was a fictional story, as you know. I want to tell you a true one. A true one. About the Titanic. It has to do with an older couple by the name of Ida and Isidore Strauss, who was an immigrant couple who made their way to America and, and scraped and clawed and scratched themselves and made a name for themselves. They opened a little merchandise store in New York and they named it Macy's. And um, when they were getting older, they decided it was time to return to the homeland and see their relatives. And so they, they planned this glorious trip. And on the return trip, they would come back on this new maiden voyage of this new boat by the name of the Titanic. And so, of course, they're the picture of romance as they're walking up and down the decks in the, uh, of this wonderful ocean liner um, headed back home to, uh, to New York. And then on that fateful day in, fateful day in April of 1912, the iceberg is struck and, and the, the, the ship is destroyed and it's on its way down. And uh, as they strolled along the, the uh, walked along the, uh, the deck assessing what they should do, they came upon a lifeboat that was being filled with women and children. And so, and so Ida was getting into the, the lifeboat and about halfway in, she changed her mind. She looked at her husband and she said, nope, where you go? I'm going. And so she gets out. And the, the, the staff tried to convince her, ma'am, this is a big mistake and you need to get in here. And she said, nope, I'm not going without him. And so the staff on the lifeboat says, well, I'm sure no one would object if, uh, if you're, this grand old gentleman would get on board with us. And so um, uh, he looked up and said, he was just as stubborn as his wife, and he said, nope, I'm not getting on before the other men do. And so they looked at each other and said, I'm not going if you're not going. And so neither of them went. And so they went to a deck chair. They sat down. They held hands and waited for the inevitable. I wonder how many of you would give up your seat on a lifeboat to sit in a deck chair on the deck of the Titanic. Many of you would. And for the rest of you, don't give up. This is a glorious institution. It's one of God's greatest provisions.
May we pray. Our Father, I pray now that you will meet us at the table where we consider the greatest of your provisions in Christ Jesus the Lord. Might every heart be strangely warmed as we remember the provisions for our sin in the Savior who gave his life so that we might live. The one who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. We celebrate his work for his people now. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.